one of the biggest movements in Christianity over, I guess, the past century has been the so-called prosperity gospel. The idea that if you believe in God, if you have enough faith, God is going to reward that with health, wealth, and happiness. People who believe this will often say things like, you know, God wants to bless you. God wants to, to make you happy. God wants you to have success. You are a, a child of God and your father only wants what's best for his children. Now the tricky part with that is that there is, there is truth in those statements. God does want to bless you. God does want you to be full of joy. God does want you to be successful. And God has made you a child of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if all of that is true, then where does the the prosperity gospel go wrong? Well, the problem is that they, they take these truths and they define them in a worldly sense and not a biblical sense. When they say that God wants you to have success, what they're meaning is that that God wants you to be financially successful and prosperous. When they say that God wants you to be joyful, they mean that God wants to give you a a nice house, a full bank account, nice cars, a Gucci bag, all of that stuff so that you will be happy. And when they say that God wants the best for you, they mean that God wants you always to be healthy always to be wealthy and never suffering or facing trials. But is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that it is God's will that His children never suffer? Does the Bible teach that our joy is based upon financial or worldly success? Does the Bible teach that if we live a life of of constant struggle, then the favor of the Lord is not upon us. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. You see, on, on the whole, the Bible teaches pretty much the opposite of that. Abel offers a sacrifice acceptable to God, and yet he is the one who is killed by his brother, Abraham, the father of Israel, and yet spent his whole life as a sojourner in the promised land. Job, who we read about. There's no greater man in the east, blameless in the sight of God, and yet loses everything he has. Moses, a man who who spoke and met with the Lord, and yet a man of, of constant affliction from the people That he led. David, a man after God's own heart, and yet a man who spent several years on the run from his friends and family. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the great servant of Christ, and yet beaten, battered, battered, and beheaded for his testimony of the gospel. And of course, The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the perfect man, sinless, full of of truth, full of love, full of grace. And what, what does the Bible call Him? A man of sorrows, scorned and murdered by the ones He came to save. See, there is this 
this pattern in the Bible that the faithful will suffer and face trials. And that could be a hard concept for us to grasp. And that's because though none of us would affirm the prosperity gospel, I hope, it can sometimes creep into our minds. If God loves me, why am I suffering? If God wants the best for me, how is my current situation that I'm in the best? If God wants me to have have full and complete joy in Him, how is it possible that He keeps sending trial after trial towards me? Have you ever thought these questions? I know that I have. And to try and answer them this morning, we're going to be looking at James chapter 1. Uh, in our Bible. So you can turn to James chapter 1. We're taking a break still from the book of Luke. We're going to look at James 1, just verses 2 to 4. And here, the reading of God's Word this morning. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. So from my own experience of of talking with people about God and, and the gospel, one of the most common objections of those who, who don't believe in God is that there's just there's too much suffering and too much evil in this world for a God to exist. I mean, if God was truly all-powerful, truly all-good, then our world wouldn't be as messed up as it is today. And many people who leave the faith, I mean, Christians for many years leave the faith, often will say similar things. You know, I chose to follow God And my life didn't get any better. In fact, it got worse. Why would would God do that? Why would God not change the situation that I am in? Doesn't he love me? Doesn't he care for me? And you see, all of these, these questions are really asking the same thing that really boils down to just one question. And that question is, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted, and specifically, can God be trusted in our trials and suffering? And to answer that, I want to look at three truths from our passage about the trials we face. And so the first one, in verse 2, it's that trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. Notice what he says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when... You meet trials of various kinds. Notice he says, when you face trials, not if you face trials. And Jesus says the same thing in John 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. See, that's a, that's a guarantee from Jesus. He's not saying you might have tribulation. He's saying you will have tribulation. And it's a, it's a hard truth but it's still the truth nonetheless. There is no escaping trials and tribulation in this world. 
You can be blameless before the Lord like Job, but guess what? That didn't spare him from experiencing trials. Now, why is this a a crucial truth that we need to understand regarding our trials? Why do we need to accept the idea that trials are inevitable? Well, it's essential for a few reasons. First, if you became a Christian so that all of your, your problems will go away and you won't suffer anymore, you've been deceived. You've been deceived. It is true that our biggest problems in life, you know, our, our hard and, and callous hearts, our slavery to sin, the punishment of sin that rests upon us, all of those problems are dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. But it's not until we, we die or until Christ returns that all of our problems will be done away with. See, God, God loves us as his children, but that doesn't mean that his, his children are never going to face trials. Now, you might be a, a Christian who is facing trials and, and thinking to yourself, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. Well, to put it as, as kindly as I can, when you became a Christian, this is exactly what you signed up for. And if someone sold you on the idea that if you come to Jesus, you will have no trials in this world, then they lied to you. Jesus says, take up your cross, your cross, and follow me. And so being a Christian means means being prepared to suffer and to face trials. Now, as we will see later, the beauty of, of the gospel is that through, though, though our trials don't go away when we become a Christian, we do become equipped as Christians by the Spirit to persevere through our trials. So we are not without hope. And we'll talk about that, that later. Now, second reason that you need to understand the inevitability of trials is that when you accept your trials, you can work towards using them to grow your faith rather than destroy your faith. Have you ever had an instance in your life where your expectations aren't met? Maybe you were trying out for a, a sports team and you got cut from the team or maybe you were expecting a good mark on, a, on, on your class test and you barely passed instead. Or maybe you were expecting a raise at your job or a big Christmas bonus and instead you got a box of chocolates and a, and a thank you card. Now you can, when our, when our expectations aren't met, it can be devastating. And the same is true for trials. Your trials are less likely to crush you when you expect them to come. Because if you expect them, you can prepare for them. In war, a, a very important principle uh, of war is, is the element of surprise. You think on the attack at, at Pearl Harbor. That attack wouldn't have been successful if the Americans had known that the attack was coming. The reason it was successful was because there was no idea that it was coming. They had no one manning the guns, no aircraft shooting down, uh, shooting back at the planes. Well, trials should never have the element of surprise on us as Christians. Peter in 1 Peter 4 verse 12 says very clearly, Do not be surprised 
at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We know, we've been promised as Christians that trials are coming. And as a result, it's our responsibility to prepare for them. And I could preach a whole sermon on how we as, as Christians are to prepare for our trials, but I'm just going to give you one, one essential way to do that uh, this morning. And that is that you need to know the Word of God. You need to know the Word of God. I've read many stories of, of Christians who have suffered and been thrown in prison for their faith without a Bible. And the ones that thrive in the times of trial are the ones who know the Word of God. The ones who, who have memorized the Word of God. The ones who have immersed themselves in the Word of God daily so that when the time of trial comes, they are prepared. And we need to do that. We need to impress God's Word on our hearts so that when trials come, we know which passages are going to give us hope. We know which passages speak on the sovereignty of God in our trials. We know which passages speak on the faithfulness of God to His children. And so if you want to be, if you want to be prepared to face trials well, start, start here. Start by immersing yourself in God's Word and memorizing God's Word. And so that's the, the first truth about trials we see from this passage. Trials are inevitable. And when we believe that truth, it helps us push aside these lies that creep into our heads that if we're suffering, all of a sudden something is wrong. And then it helps us to prepare for them. Now moving on to the second truth about trials. You might be thinking to yourself so far, Lucas, how are you bringing us hope right now? I mean, all you've told us is that we are going to suffer. And where is the hope and joy in that? Well, the hope and joy comes when we realize this next truth. The truth that there is purpose in our trials. Look at verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yes, you will face trials and tribulation in this world. But here's the good news. Your suffering is not meaningless. Your suffering is not for nothing. It has a purpose whether you believe it or not. And that purpose is always for your good. You're battling a, a disease that just won't go away. It isn't meaningless suffering. You're struggling in a, in a marriage where your, your spouse doesn't love you the way that they should. It isn't meaningless suffering. You're being slandered or falsely accused or ripped off in a, a business transaction. It isn't meaningless suffering. Your church goes through a, a difficult time. It isn't meaningless suffering. Everything that we suffer and every trial that we experience has a God-ordained purpose behind it. Now what the specific purpose is, I cannot say. But what I can say, because the Bible says it, is that it is a good 
purpose, even if we don't see it right away. I mean, take the story of, of Joseph. Joseph lived, Joseph lived a hard life. I mean, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's bought by a, a Roman official. He serves him well and faithfully, and then the official's wife comes, and because he won't sleep with her, she falsely accuses him, and he's thrown into prison. Then he gets into prison, and he faithfully serves the prison guard, and he, he interprets this dream, that, that, and, and the man is released uh, with the knowledge of that dream, and he's supposed to come back and help Joseph, and, he, and, and this man just forgets about him for many years. You know, Joseph was a man of, of suffering and of trials, but what does, he, what does he say at the end of it all? In Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph's suffering, his trials, they all had a purpose. They made Joseph into the man that he was. They put him in the place that he needed to be in order that he could save thousands of lives, including the life of his brother Judah, from whom the long-awaited and promised Messiah would eventually come. Now, the purpose of of our trials are not likely going to be as, as grand as Joseph's. But that doesn't mean that they are meaningless or purposeless. And we're going to look now at some of the, some of the purposes that the Bible does tell us regarding our trials uh, that you and me are facing right now. And so first, in verse 3, it says, uh, this is the first purpose of our trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so one of the purposes of our trials is to test our faith, to test our faith. Now, test here is used in a, a positive sense. And what I mean by that is that the testing we face in our trials is, is for the purpose of proving our faith genuine. You know, think to yourself, what is, what is the point of a test? Now, the point of the test is not to fail you. The point of the test is, is to prove your knowledge is genuine. I took a gun course last year so I could get my gun license, and at the end of the course, I had to take a test. And the point of the test was not, you know, to fail me, to prevent me from owning a gun, but to determine whether or not I had actually learned the material that I was being taught. My knowledge needed to be proven to be genuine. And the same is true with our trials. Our trials act as a test, not to whether our knowledge is genuine, but to whether our Faith is genuine. They separate the, the counterfeit from the real. How do, you, how do you determine real money from counterfeit money? Well, you put it through a series of tests. And in life, those, those tests are our trials. And so when trials come, we're being asked that key question I posed at the very beginning. Do you trust me? That's the question God is asking us. Do you trust me? Is your faith in me because everything in your life is going well? Or will you believe in me no matter what comes to pass? It's like the wedding vows that we make with our spouse. 
you know, what do we say? We say, for better and for worse, for richer and for poorer, in sickness and in health. And it's the same for us. Do we trust God when it's worse, poorer, and sickness? Or only when it's better, richer, and health? This trial that you're facing, any trial that you're facing, it's a test. It's a test. And you can trust in God through it. So that's the first purpose. We also see a second purpose. Verse 3 says, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Produces steadfastness. Or some of your translations will say it produces endurance or it produces perseverance. And so not only do our, our trials test our faith, they also strengthen our faith and they produce more faithfulness in us to God. When I was in high school, I ran cross-country. And now... Cross country might think, oh wow, that's an easy sport. You just run around on a trail. How hard could it be? But if you want to be good at the sport, uh, you need to train hard and you need to push yourself. You know, if in your practice you just run and you stop when it starts to hurt, you're never going to improve. But if you embrace the pain, if you understand that the pain is only temporary and that the pain is part of the process of producing a better runner, then you're going to come out on the other side of that victorious. And that is how trials work in our lives. I mean, they hurt. They hurt a lot. And it feels like at times you can't go on. It feels like at times that you are alone or that no good could possibly come from this. And the only option is to, to either give in or to give up. But I want to encourage you, don't. Don't do that. Persevere and push through the pain. God is growing your faith in this. This trial has been, has been sent by God to produce steadfastness in you. And so instead of, of giving up and giving in, grab hold with all of your strength to the promises of God. That God will never leave you or forsake you. That God disciplines not, not those that he hates, but those that he loves. That God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. That the Spirit helps you in your weakness. He helps you in your weakness. And that this, this light and momentary affliction is achieving for you an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. The Lord has not forgotten you. The Lord has not abandoned you. The Lord is right there with you. And he is producing in you a, a steadfastness and a faithfulness and dare I even say a joy that only comes through the fires of trial. So have faith. Trust in God. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's the second purpose of trials. And now the third purpose of our trials is related. The steadfastness that trials produce, that's not the end goal. The steadfastness produces something even greater. It leads us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Look at verse 4. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that, that first phrase that James says is challenging. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. A few weeks ago, I was speaking with a, a man that someone had pointed me to. He was he's a much older, much wiser man than I am. And he quoted this verse to me, and he told me something that stuck with me. Uh, he said, Lucas, you don't get to choose how long you suffer. You don't get to choose how long you suffer. Let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, what he was saying is that it's not within my control when my trials begin and when my trials end. God is the one who who sets the time frame for our trials. And the command for us is to let, let this happen. Now that doesn't mean that we can't We can't plead with the Lord to remove our trials. Paul, when talking about the thorn in his flesh, says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Or we have the example of the Lord Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. And so it's not wrong to to ask God to remove your trials. But if he doesn't, What must our answer be? It must be the answer of Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And this is what James is saying when he says, when he says, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let the the trial and the subsequent perseverance do what it is is meant to do. If you seek to escape from from every trial and suffering that comes your way, you're not enduring the trial. You're fleeing from the trial. And you miss out on, on steadfastness having its full effect, which is the, the ultimate and final purpose of our trials. See, that full effect, James says, is to be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Trials, when we, we persevere in them, they move us one step closer to becoming what we already are in the sight of God, perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. One Greek philosopher said it well. He said, A gem cannot be polished without friction, nor a man perfected without trials. See, our trials, they're they're hard. There's friction there, but they also shape us, and they make us more like Christ. And Christ himself is the perfect example for us in this. You know, why can we stand here today forgiven of all of our sins? It's because Jesus suffered and persevered through trials. As Hebrews 2.10 says, he was made perfect through suffering. Or again, as Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, Jesus faced every trial common to man, and he passed every trial. And because he passed every trial, he was made perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And if, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you know, that is the most wonderful news that we could ever hear. 
Because Christ was made perfect, he is able to die in your place as the perfect sacrifice, setting you free from sin and death. See, it was the suffering of of Jesus that brought about the greatest good in all of history. And if that is, is true, then we know that God can and God will bring about good through our suffering that we may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing, just like our Savior. Now, I want you to, to quickly take a moment to reflect on this in your own, your own life, in your own history. I want you to think on a trial that you've been through. Maybe it was a, a sickness. Maybe it was a relationship problem. Maybe it was a financial problem. Whatever the trial is, I want you to to bring that to your mind and think back on that. And now I want you to, to think about all that God has done even already through that trial. Did He make you more thankful for the things that you have? Did He make you trust in Him more than you ever have? Did He reveal to you an area of, of sin in your life that you needed to repent of? Did he cause you to to dive more into prayer or into his word? So when we look back and we we think on our trials, we can see that every trial does have a purpose. And we know that we can trust that every purpose of God is good. One of my favorite verses is Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying that if if God gave us his very own son to save sinners, enemies of God, how much more can we trust God now that we've been brought in as the children of God to graciously work all things for the good of those who love him? We can trust in God, and that includes our trials and our sufferings. So then, what should our response be to trials? And this leads to the third and probably the most difficult truth we're going to look at this morning. And that is that we rejoice in our trials. We rejoice in our trials. Look back at at verse 2. It starts off by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Now, I said this is the most difficult truth about trials because naturally, what is our response to suffering? Is it joy? Maybe, though, at least I know in my own life, usually not most of the time. But... Now that we have seen that our trials are actually sent to us, not to break us, but to grow us and to lead us closer to God and to conform us to the image of Christ, we can and we should respond to our trials in joy. God loves you enough to discipline you and to make you more satisfied in Him in all circumstances. I do, though, want to be clear that we are not rejoicing in the evil 
that may be contributing to our trial. As Christians, we, we call out evil for what it is, and we're saddened by the evil that we see in this world and the evil that is done to us. So instead, what we're doing is we are rejoicing because we trust that God is in control in all of our circumstances and that he is working them for our ultimate good. And so if you're, if you're going through a difficult trial, being joyful doesn't mean that you can't cry or you can't weep or you can't be sor- filled with sorrow. It means that you are content in the working of God and, and the working of Christ through you even as you weep and moan and cry through your trial. And the Apostle Paul says it well. He says that he is sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. See, the two aren't opposed to one another. Joy is being able to, to rejoice even as you are sorrowful because of your circumstances. And that is the beauty of joy. You know, it merges in spite of our situations. It's the experience of a, of a greater peace and contentment that knowing that even though your situation is in chaos and that there is, is pain and hardship, that the Lord is good and that he can be trusted. God is using your trial for your good and his glory. And so you can, you can rejoice and be glad in him. And so what does a, a joyful person look like? You might say, okay, I know I need to rejoice, but what, what would that look like as I'm walking through a, tri- a trial? Well, it looks like trusting in the plan of God. It looks like being content with whatever situation God may place you in. It looks like being filled with hope for better days, whether it be in, in, in this life or in the life to come. It looks like rejoicing that you are being counted as worthy to suffer alongside your Savior. And so that's how we rejoice in our trials. Now at the very beginning of the sermon, I asked the question that really summed up all of these questions about trials and suffering. The question was, can God be trusted? And when we are not facing trials, I mean, the answer is usually pretty easy for us to say. Yes. I mean, of course God can be trusted. But when you've lost your job, when you've just got that phone call from the doctor, when you found out your spouse has been having an affair on you, when you just got the blood work back and your sweet little child has an incurable disease, well, the answer then becomes a lot harder. But it's still true, nonetheless. Yes, God can be trusted. Now, our church is, is going through a difficult trial, even as I, as I preach the sermon, and this is why I'm, I'm preaching this sermon. Disagreement and division amongst leadership is always hard. It's always painful. It's a, a suffering that we are called to endure. But we can also have hope because this trial, it's not for nothing. It's not meaningless. It's not without purpose. We can trust 
that the Lord is good and that he is working in this for good. Whether that be that the church thrives through this trial or whether that be that the church struggles through this trial. Either way, we can trust in the Lord that he is good. And I say this to give you hope and to point you towards the joy that can be found in the Lord in any and in all circumstances. And so let me just finish again with the words of our passage. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Amen. Let's pray.